0: all right hey everybody and thank you for listening this is the first episode of we read theory a podcast that reads and discusses uh radical leftist theory and sort of breaks it down and lets you uh, lets me in this case ask you know the natural questions uh my name is alex my name is mark and today we're going to be talking about peter Kropotkin's conquest of bread Mark has read this, and I, Alex, have not. And
1: why don't we just jump right into it? Okay, so for a little bit of background, uh, Peter Kropotkin was born into the Russian aristocracy, but he had an anti-aristocratic bent to him pretty much from as young as 12, 14. Uh, He really wasn't into the idea of being an aristocrat. Um, In 1872... He came out to Switzerland to join the International Working Men's Association, which would later be known as the First International. Um, as far as I understand, this was just after the split, or about during the split between the Marxists and the anarchists. And he uh, became dissatisfied with the First International uh, and their kind of Marxist form of socialism. And uh, He would soon become an anarchist. He would later be, after the... Um, assassination of Tsar Alexander II, he would be kicked out of Switzerland, end up in France, where he was uh, imprisoned. Once he got out, he moved to London, which is where he wrote the bulk of his like most famous works, including The Conquest of Bread. And um, so to get into The Conquest of Bread, um, what it is fundamentally about is about distinguishing the anarcho-communist way of being uh, that Kropotkin was kind of coming up with from specifically from the Marxists from the, of the First International, but also as sort of an improvement on the anarchist theory that uh, Mikhail Bakunin pushed with his anarcho collectivism. And we'll get into the differences between those two things in a little bit. Um, but to start off, in order to really understand what anarcho communism is all about, you need to understand what Peter Kropotkin believed about property. Um, in short, he wasn't a fan of private ownership of property, but his reasoning behind this was that generally we think that someone owns something when they put work into resources and make something of greater value, or at least we believe that they're entitled to some compensation for doing that. Um, we do our best to you know, compensate people in kind to what they've done, uh, but Kropotkin says you know, that's impossible. Because when you look at the items that you use, let's say uh, you're living in 1892 London and you have coal that you used to heat that you use to heat your house. That coal was mined in a mine somewhere else in, uh, in uh, Great Britain. Uh, that mine employs tons of people. You could never track down who mined that specific piece of coal. But furthermore, in order to get to your house, the coal needs to be loaded in large quantities onto a train. The train is staffed by certain people. It was built by other people. The tracks that it runs on are laid by other people. The train runs on its own fuel. The metal, the metal used to build the train was mined somewhere else. Uh, it's really just everything is so interconnected. It's impossible to quantify each person's contribution. And Kropotkin's answer to this uh, problem is just don't. And that's really the basis of anarcho-communism is that there is... No private property, which is something that he shares with Marxist socialists, but he really goes even one step further and and pretty much doesn't believe in personal property, at least to some degree. The, I want to back up just a little bit, though, and talk about how you build an anarchist communist society uh, before I get into exactly what it looks like. Uh, Step one is obviously to have a violent revolution, overthrow the state, and put in place what this new uh, way of living is going to be. What is step one after you overthrow the state? If you ask Kropotkin, step one is where his work gets its name from, bread. You organize groups of people, and you carry out a an action called expropriation. Expropriation is really, really important. And it's the process by which privately owned property and resources um, are basically turned into common goods. So you would have privately owned storehouses of grain all over a city like, let's say Paris. You send out groups of people, they go out, they take stock of the grain, and then they distribute it to anyone that needs it. They go out They take stock of all the housing. They distribute it to everyone who needs it. They take stock of all the cloth in the city. They use it to make clothes, distribute it to everyone that needs it. Um, And it's it's the fact that things are distributed based on need, rather than how much money a person might have or how much work they've done that really sets anarcho-communism apart from even the anarcho-collectivist system that Mikhail Bakunin championed. Now, once you've done that, You have a population that is going to be much more likely to be physically able to protect the revolution from reactionaries because they have food in their bellies, they're living under a good roof, Uh, but they're also going to be more emotionally willing to defend the revolution after this time. One of the main problems that um, Kropotkin had with the past revolutions is that they really didn't get this aspect of it. They would overthrow the state, and then a bunch of guys would lock themselves in a room and they would talk about High-minded political ideas instead of talking about what the people actually need what the revolution was about Which was about people starving in the streets people not having enough of what they need So you fulfill the revolution on day one by distributing bread. You also make it more resilient and that's um Some of the basics of anarcho-communism beyond that once you're kind of living in this anarcho-communist uh, society, the way that we think of labor is also significantly different from today. Uh, we think of labor as needing to be very uh, divided and people to be big, really specialized in order to make production possible these days. Uh, Kropotkin doesn't agree. He thinks that you can organize labor in a way that makes it easy for any one person to do, including manual labor Uh, You can make it a lot more pleasant to do if you're not driven by profits to make it as cheap as possible to get it done. And what that means is that on a given day, you might choose to go out and work in the farms. You might choose to go out and work in the factories. You might choose to go work in a mine. And the reason why you would do these things is because they'd be significantly more pleasant and because you would view it as a part of your duty to your community. And since your needs are already met, You're not busy worrying about how much money am I going to have. You can worry about how can I contribute to the community in a selfless way without it getting in the way of your own survival. Um, Kropotkin believes that if everyone takes part in manual labor, it should only take about 150 half days, that's four to five hours a day of work in order to produce absolutely all of the necessities that we need for life. Um, Beyond that, he says it takes another 150 half days or 150 full days in total to make all of the necessities of life and most of our main like sort of luxuries, our coffee, our silk, our jewelry. Um, Beyond that, whatever time you have left, since you don't have to worry about money, since you um, kind of just have the world as your oyster, that's what you do everything else with. You can pursue science. You can pursue, um, you know, authorship and and, and write books. And how that all works is something that we might get into um, a little bit later. But uh, for now, that's the basic outline of anarcho-communism. So, Alex, are there any questions that are kind of coming to mind right away? Uh, Nope, I understand it
0: completely. (laughs) Oh, wow, that's good. That was quick. Awesome, awesome. Only nine minutes. Perfect. Um, On a real note, um, so you said... Everyone is entitled to
1: everything. So, so yeah, it, to, to get more specific, um, Kapotkin says that there are, it, the idea is basically that, um, anything that exists in like surplus that we have more than we need of, anyone can just have as much of that as they want. And Kropotkin generally believes that people are going to be sparing with the things, not take more than they need. Because once again, like it's this capitalist mode of production that stokes that greediness in us that need to hoard things because we're always so worried about our security when it can be taken away at any time. When we're guaranteed that like financial security and our necessities, it's not going to be a big problem that uh, people could theoretically take all of the water or all of the food from the stores. Um, so
0: if someone wanted to record a podcast and they needed a microphone like a really really nice you know um a really nice studio microphone there's not going to be that's obviously not going to be in surplus Mm -hmm. so how would i in this society like
1: go about getting one so in so so for items that aren't in surplus um generally the way that we would think of it is um that they would be rationed at Um, A microphone is actually an interesting item, and I think, you know, obviously Kropotkin could never have predicted that podcasts would be a thing, but let me talk to you a little bit about uh, how he would talk about producing books instead, because I think that that if you want to look at it through the Kropotkin lens, I think it would be kind of a similar thing. Let's say in a city, you have a certain number of people that all collectively want to produce podcasts. And there's a lot of things that go into producing podcasts. You need your recording equipment. You need recording studios so that you can get good sound. You need sound editing software and computers. We're fucked then. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 uh likewise when you wanna write a book and publish it and distribute it, you need the bindings, you need the paper, you need the ink, you need the printing presses and you need people to run them from where you actually print them to where they're to be distributed. This is something that would be taken care of outside of your 300 half days. And you would basically have something of an author's or podcaster's society within your community that is made up of people who, A, want to create podcasts and are willing to do whatever labor is necessary to get their podcasts sort of out there. And it's also made up of people who just like podcasts enough that even if they're not creating the, you know, writing and recording the podcast themselves, because once again, they have their basic needs met. They are free to use their labor as they see on a given day are willing to work at building microphones work at building computers, creating the kind of editing software that you would need, or using stuff that someone else has made, it's software. And so they all kind of work together in a big group to to make podcasting possible. It would be kind of a mini podcasting commune, so to speak. Does that make sense?
0: Podcasting commune. Okay. So basically what you're saying is you want to do um, something involved in... Like a, a luxury hobby, like, yeah, like like arts or literature, you yeah. really have to commit to it. And it can't, you can't do everything, I guess.
1: No, you can't do everything probably, but you can't do anything. You can't do everything today.
0: Either. But if you wanted to pursue something yeah. that badly, mm-hmm. you truly could, because one, you had the time. Yes. And two, you had the resources. yeah.
1: And you would have, as long as like, you know, your passion isn't something really, really obscure. Um, any decent-sized group of people is going to have a large number of people who want to pursue that thing as well. And if wherever you live doesn't have that large number of people, you would have freedom of movement. You could go somewhere that does. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So I want to jump back to your, when, when you said um, you can switch between jobs because a lot of these jobs are you know, menial labor. Yes. Uh, like like farming or factory work.
1: Yeah, it's Im- before before you go on. It's important to understand that this book was written in 1892. So the percentage of work being done uh, that was manual was much higher than it is today. M- you know, most people living in developed countries are used to living in service economies these days. Um, that wasn't really the case for him back then. So. It's hard to say exactly which jobs, um, you know, there's a concept called bullshit jobs today where, where there's, there's jobs that people just do because they have to do something and not because it, anyone actually needs it done. So it, it's hard to say exactly which jobs would still exist, but you could fe- you could you could work the same system around a service economy, uh, possibly as well as a manual. economy.
0: I think if he was writing, writing this today, well, actually, I should ask, do you think if he was writing this today, how do you think he would have thought about automation?
1: Um, obviously, he would have been very in favor of automation. So, in in the here, we, I want to move on to that automation question, but I want to finish answering that first question. Absolutely. So, can you just repeat uh, that so we can so we can answer that before moving on? Um, how is it that you can switch between jobs? Okay. So 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 you would it, it would basically be almost like everything would be as unskilled. As possible I actually found myself a little bit unsatisfied with how he kind of just brushed this uh, this off but um, in general he's kind of in favor of that like 1890s era amount of automation amount of using machines to make it as easy as possible so that you don't necessarily need to train people to work in fields or to mine and people can kind of just generally know how to do it um, just by watching it done, uh, very simply, um, you know, the specifics of how you would run a farm or train people to run a farm are a little bit too, um, that's a little bit too like deep to really for Kropotkin to get into in like such a wide ranging work as the conquest of bread. But basically the work ought to be simple enough and agreeable enough that just about anyone could do it. And that the people who couldn't do it would be few enough that it could still get done, and it would still be good enough for everyone to live, live with.
0: Okay, so keep keeping keeping with the fact that this was written um, over a hundred years ago. Yeah, um, there was still secondary education back way back then. So yeah. if can you just clarify what you mean by secondary education? Secondary education meaning going uh getting training for multiple years. It doesn't have to be like yeah. in, a, in like an actual school form. So you mean like so something like
1: a college education.
0: Just, yeah, just, just like, uh,
1: high school. Yeah. high school part of that as well.
0: Um anything not considered like public general education, like okay. arts history, basic maths, mm-hmm. um anything anything you'd have to have technical training for. Like I, I I'd say I obviously like, like trade jobs are like secondary okay. secondary education. Um so what if, I'm assuming when um, someone turns, say, like 18, I don't know specific age, if he mentioned an age in there that you'd have to start working and contributing? Um,
1: he didn't specify any particular age, no.
0: Okay. So he's just um, kind of branching off that he's just assuming that everyone, it, wait, so, yeah, wait, actually, yeah let's okay. backtrack a little bit. Okay. So he assumes everyone is going to work yes that's a pretty big assumption what if someone you know refuses to contribute is that a criminal offense
1: okay so 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 he's an anarchist so obviously there's no such thing as crime really in this in the sense that we think of it there's no centralized state to to enforce laws mm-hmm. The way that you sort of, so so first of all, he thinks that people don't really need incentives in the same way that we do today. The reason we need to be incentivized with money is because we need money in order to buy the things we need to survive. And we're always kind of dangling on that knife's edge. That's why everyone is so concerned with money all the time. It needs to be compensated for their time because time is so precious when you need to use it to keep yourself alive. Um, so first of all, Kropotkin thinks has has a higher opinion of people than probably most people that I've met in real life would. Um, and and one of one of the big pieces of evidence that he uses for this is a that around the time that even he was living, or shortly before then, most you know he was living sort of at the tail end of the uh, industrial revolution. But but for most of human history, most people lived in these kind of like farming communities that worked pretty communally. And uh, in, in sort of a like pre-industrial communism, as he would have called it. So he says, first of all, communism is a way that people generally live in. It's the default state of humanity, arguably. He would have said that tribal peoples would have lived communistly as well. And he would say that um, if you look at what happens during a natural disaster, the first thing that people say, let, let's take the Titanic. People didn't say the richest people the most productive people get to go to the lifeboats first. The most worthy people. No, it's women and children. Because women and children are the most in need of, of help in that situation, at least you know from that uh, kind of uh, perspective. So he thinks that this is kind of a default way that humans work. He's not so concerned with, like, oh, no, everyone's just going to laze about. He just doesn't think that that's really um, very natural for humans. Now, in the inevitably, you're going to have a small number of people who might not be so inclined to work and might like see that, oh, well, if everyone else works and I don't and I'm entitled, then you know, I can just mooch off everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, what's important to remember that it is is that is that the world is still, is that, that people still live in these groups. These groups would be their communes. And while everyone in the commune is entitled to the basic necessities of life and the luxuries that are produced in the commune, you're not necessarily entitled to membership of a commune. Um, Kropotkin is a really big believer in freedom of association. So if I'm living in a commune and I decide I don't, I just don't want to work one day, They can, you know, the commune can collectively decide, well, you know, forget about that guy. Uh, We're not going to, he's not entitled to, you know, the necessities that we produce because he isn't taking part in the commune. Um, But as long as you're a part of the commune, then you would be entitled. And as long as you're willing to produce, you're willing to work towards the goals of the commune, then you would be provided for And if for some reason the commune decides they just don't like you, even if you're willing to work and produce, well, there's a commune next door. There's a, you know, they're, 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 they're everywhere. So you can just go somewhere else and say, Hey, like, I know how to do this. Uh, I'm willing to do this. Uh, Let me help you guys out. And, you know, it shouldn't be too hard to
0: find people who will have you. So it'd be very small and community-based rather than nationally
1: organized. Yeah. Um, it kind of depends on what stage of the revolution you're talking about when you talk about whether or not like nations are very much of a thing. Um, obviously the state is not a thing in an anarchist society. So like uh, Kropotkin doesn't necessarily say, Oh, this is how big a commune is going to be. Like he uses the city of Paris as an example of a commune. And he also uses these small rural communities as an example of potential communes. So um it's pretty easy to imagine that there would be a lot of different sized communes that work in kind of different ways
0: okay so say i was in a smaller farm commune yes right like say like like a thousand people okay we're not going to have all of these individualized like you know the um whatever we were talking about before, our podcasting society okay. would not be a thing in our small farming community. No,
1: probably but, not.
0: But, you know, all my family is here in this small farming community. I don't exactly want to leave.
1: Mm-hmm. How
0: would I maybe go to go to Paris and be involved in this community, even though I'm not a part of the commune? Would I have to barter or trade? Because I'm not necessarily contributing to their
1: commune. So, so, so just because you're part of a different commune doesn't mean that you're not already interacting with maybe like, okay, let's say, let's say Paris is a commune and, and some departments or like some areas that would be in departments outside of Paris are also, you know, they have their communes. Maybe they have a few, maybe they're one big commune. doesn't matter. Um, Paris within the confines of the city walls can't produce everything it needs. It needs food. So if you are in a commune near Paris, you would already have a strong relationship with the Paris commune. You would be giving them food, um, basically giving them as much as you can without starving yourselves. And in return, since Paris has the ability to create all these uh, manufactured goods that you might need, your farming tools, your machines, your fertilizer, uh, you would already have that very communal relationship.
0: So I guess a lot of farming, because like one farming community couldn't support all of Paris, a lot of farming communities would have to work together. Who is all of like this, uh, I guess, trade organized by? Do they still democratically elect people to organize all
1: of this? um, Not really. It's really just done by free association. So, 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 okay. Kropotkin uses a pretty interesting example of how this like free association way of like cooperation across large um, areas works. And he refers to the kind of trans European railways that, that, that sprout up over the course of the industrial revolution. And what happened was, you know, across like Western central parts of Eastern Europe, you had this very expansive railway network, all built by different peoples, you know, different companies um, making different trains, but They all were smart. They all understood that trains work a hell of a lot better when you can take a train from, you know, Brest in 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 Nor in not Normandy, oh my god, Brittany. Um sorry. Uh when you can take a train from there all the way to, you know, like Vienna, all the way down to Greece, even. Um, you know. And and whatever section of trains you're looking over is going to work a lot better if it's interconnected in that system. So there wasn't any even a democratically elected body. There was no central organizing body that helped them to figure out what gauge tracks they were going to they were going to build um, and and help them to line it up. They just did it because they were all like smart people who could work together and figure it out. There was mm-hmm. there didn't need to be a central committee. Now if you look at like. Uh, Kropokhin also points to kind of the railroads that were built under like the czarist regime in Russia and says there's a centrally planned like kind of railroad and it's got all these problems because it isn't built on a local level to service local needs. It's got this really centralized uh, perspective that it's built based on. And so it really falls short uh, when it comes to servicing like smaller, more local communities. Hmm. And so, so he kind of extrapolates that way of organizing that free association to all other forms of exchange and production.
0: Okay. So I guess it'd be hard to, you know, monopolize one kind of one necessarily. Yeah. Would, yeah. Could things still be, um, monopolized, say, one say for like sake of argument only one small commune controls all reserves of say some mineral okay right say say it's say like they need gold for like gold banded wedding rings or something like that okay so they could theoretically set the price to other communes right they could just say it was because because they mm-hmm. were you know a part of like this this tiny community of people yeah they could collectively decide that their labor was worth more so because no one could get this one commodity anywhere else
1: so there's so there's two things first of all um the question is under an anarchist communist system why even bother what are you actually gaining from that like Um, Because you're already getting everything you need. You have the right to move around, get the luxuries you need, um, participate in these kind of like um, artistic or scientific societies as you wish. So the question is, why even bother extorting people? That's really what anarchist communism is all about, is removing that need, that desire to extort, to exploit people. Beyond that, if you have a small um, community or even a large community that is the... That kind of monopolizes. You said gold. Um, you're probably not producing all of what you need otherwise. Therefore, like if you have enough for tons of other people, you're probably not producing uh, everything else you need otherwise. You're probably not producing all the food you need. So that interconnectedness, that interreliance, will make it very difficult to exploit people for any like in any like serious way. And he's just saying
0: you're just naturally not going to want to exploit anybody.
1: Not that you would necessarily naturally not want to exploit people, but that our desire to exploit people uh, is really motivated by this scarcity that is foisted upon us by the capitalist mode of production Um, is, is, is not there. And so you're not going to be as motivated to do so. And when you also combine that with the fact that you probably really need other people to help you out, like if your commune is only, pro- like if you're only producing gold, gold as an ability, as, as an individual, then you need other people to help you out on that commune level. If, if your community is only producing gold, then you need other people to help you out.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. And like, there don't necessarily need to be these hard borders between communes. It can be a little bit more loosey goosey. I'm just, um,
0: because of freedom yeah, of association. Yeah.
1: Thinking about them in that, like, in this like insular way is like helpful when you want to talk about like how free association works and how, um, and how like someone might be punished collectively for not wanting to take part in that production. But in reality there would probably be a lot you know the the borders between these communes wouldn't really be borders they'd be kind of like very loose ideas of between communities and it wouldn't be any kind of hard line
0: so it sounds to me like this is really you know idealistic utopian yeah
1: yeah so that's a that's a word that kropotkin uses um, oftentimes sarcastically to describe himself and his followers um, such as when he um, is talking about the process of expropriation specifically of bread and he's talking about how how the practical people in quotes are talking about these big political ideas in the days following the revolution and it's the utopian dreamers quotes again um, who are concerned with people's daily bread. There's a really um, kind of biting irony that he's trying to get across there, that like, um, no, uh, Kapokin would not agree with you that this is idealistic or that it's utopian, uh, because this is the this is a system by which people can organize and live, where <clears throat> the goal of like the incentive structure of the society, so so to speak, is is to create like the goal that we all have where people can all live good lives, have what they need to survive. Um, he would look at a system like, um, a very similar system to his own anarcho collectivists who think, Oh, we can divide work up by, you know, how many hours it takes and pay people based on hours. And that's going to be fair. Or we can find a perfectly fair way to pay people for different kinds of work, different wages, Uh, he would say, he would say that it's still wages um, for the kind of work that they do per hour. Um, And all of this like working out in like an anarchist system without a state or with a really small state, um, Kapokin would say that's utopian. If you look back at this capitalist system, I mean the capitalist system works really well at what it is, at what it like kind of is trying to do, which is to um, create a large amount of wealth. But this idea that a system on, by which, you know, the incentive structure drives people to be greedy, to exploit each other, to accumulate mountains of wealth. Um, everyone living a good life under that system is utopian. You know, that would never happen, according to Kapotkin. Anarcho-communism is a method of organizing people that, for, for which the explicit goal is producing that good life, that best possible life for every person involved. And, um, Kapokan would argue that that's the least utopian thing ever, you know, build a society around accomplishing the goal that you want to accomplish.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. I, yes. mean, I mean, at least not,
1: not, in it's terms hard of- to, yeah, it's hard to really, um, convince a person that, just doesn't think that people are capable of this you could point to those those kinds of like communism is the natural way for humans to be arguments that uh, we talked about earlier as like some the closest thing you can get to evidence but on some level it's a matter of how much faith you have in people in general okay that
0: that that, that, I, that I guess makes a lot of his other ideology makes sense yeah but maybe not um, in terms of putting into praxis <laughs> unfortunately um, jumping back to our, yeah, yeah. In terms of, um, again, like an ideal society that makes everything easier for everyone involved, um, automation. Okay. I'm, I'm really happy you're bringing
1: automation back up because I do think that Kropotkin, I mean, clearly Kropotkin would have been very much in favor of heavy automation. Um, he was, he was very much in favor of whatever level of automation was possible at the time and so today where automation is much more uh, is much more like is, there's much more of it we can <coughs> we can automate a whole lot more we can make that hour of work go a lot farther so what i would say is that the only way in which like our increased level of automation would change this theory is that you take those 150 half days that it's required to make the necessities of life cut that down uh 100 half days Fifty half days and all that you know the effects are only positive uh, you just have more time to produce luxuries which probably also take less time to produce and that's just more time to socialize or to pursue your art form or to you know write your book or join a scientific society which can pursue science without the need to pursue certain subjects to accrue more funding does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, also, I feel like
0: the yeah. I, I obviously haven't in, read this at all, but like the effect on mental health would also be a lot better, and people might even live longer in this yeah. situation because they're not so stressed about you know at least like like eighty percent of the population will be stressed about you know where their next meal will be coming from or things like that.
1: Absolutely, and 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 I didn't quite get to this when I was talking about division of labor, but this is a really big thing for him. Um, it's common. It's, it's a very like common way of thinking that by dividing up labor and specializing, you make it a lot more effective. But Kropotkin kind of takes um, some umbrage with that idea. And basically his reasoning for that is that when you have someone who's so specialized that their entire job is to hammer the same nail on a production line every day over and over and over again, they become so depressed, they become so unmotivated that they actually don't work as well and it takes a toll on their mind and their body so by letting people to choose what labor they do in a given day to choose where they apply their labor and to make it as agreeable as possible that the mental health um, effect on people would be you know amazing at least according to kapotkin and that because people are mentally healthier they're happier they work harder and that production probably wouldn't suffer at all and might even be better by not dividing labor in the way that we do where people are hyper specialized these days got it okay and oh he also says that people would be um smarter and more capable in general by giving them a wide range of tasks to do
0: oh yeah totally they could apply um, Mm
1: on
0: you know just different ways of thinking to to new tasks by going between those jobs yeah absolutely so yeah, one one last question. I think um, a lot. Of, one of the main reasons why people defend capitalism is all of these choices. Uh, even even maybe in practice, it'll just give you, you know, three kinds of instant mac and cheese to choose from. They want this kind of choice. They think because betting um, people against each other, you know, companies against each other, with profit as the ultimate goal, and people as the voters voting with their money to choose which product is best yeah. will ultimately result in one successor. Say I, in my, in my commune, I want something to change about a product, but I don't know anything about it. Say there, people are making, you know, like the, the person who produces, say, bread in my community,
1: uh, I want something to change about that, but I don't know anything about it. Well, there's two things you could do to affect that change. The first is get in there yourself get your hands dirty, learn how. Maybe there's a reason why that change hasn't been made and you can come up with a way to make it happen or at least you'll come away understanding why things are the way they are. Um, the other thing is that if it's something that like requires really special skills, um, you could just get someone else who knows better, who shares your values to kind of punch for you in like that space. So if, if you think the bread could be made a lot better, um, learn how to make better bread. Go find people who know how to make the really good bread. Learn how and bring those skills back. You know, people would probably appreciate you for that or find someone who is just willing to come into your community who already knows how Um, it doesn't really matter Um, in terms of talking about like choices and variety, like the three different kinds of instant mac and cheese. um, Kropotkin isn't particularly concerned with that. He doesn't think that's particularly important. And he gives the, he uses broth as an example. So he says, okay, um, pretty much any, you know, soups are broth and a bunch of other like accoutrements, uh, different things you might want to put in different spices. So we have, so you would have like a communal kitchen that makes a shit ton of broth and then you can take as much as you need and do with it as you like. So it, that, that like those choices would still exist, but on a more individual level. And, and you know, if 12 people get together and one person makes all the soup for them, cause it's easier to do that way. They like the way they do it. They're free to do that. It's all freedom of association. Anarchism for Kapokin is the ultimate expression, of individual freedom. And so while, Those three mac and cheeses um, might be choices. They aren't really an expression of individual freedom because you aren't the one that decides what's, you know, because maybe you want a mac and cheese that isn't like any of those three under Kapotkin system, you could make it exactly as you want and you would be provided the resources to do so.
0: Right. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really great point. I really like that a lot. Mm -hmm. So, um, one is getting kind of late here. So let's see. I think, like, what, what would you think of the main ideas that someone should take away from the of Bread?
1: So the main ideas is that any truly, um, any true, any, like, really uh, effective revolution that is going to end this scourge of exploitation and inequality must be based on the... Um, No, let let me start over actually. Um, The way that we think about modes of organizing people and modes of production is that we think production first, consumption later. The way that Kropotkin would encourage you to think about it is consumption first, production later. Put the need first and the production after. Change your perspective like that, and a lot of things become clear. So think about people need to eat first. Okay, what do we need to do to make sure people can eat? Rather than, okay, you know, let's get the farms organized and then give out the bread. Do it in reverse. Start giving the bread out. Fill that need and do what you need to do to keep filling that need is sort of the attitude that Kapok would want you to take uh, In times of revolution and new systems coming about Hmm. Um, beyond that have faith in people Uh, have faith in the individual to make their own decisions and have faith that people will work for the collective good as long as their individual well-being can be guaranteed pretty powerful stuff truly revolutionary (laughs) all right um, so that about does it for the show uh, I know you have something fun planned for us in the next episode. Do you want to let the people know?
0: Yeah. So next episode, we are—I will be explaining to Mark Rudolf Rocker's anarcho syndicalism theory and practice. Uh, very excited mm-hmm. to do that. Very excited to be on the other side of this coin. Right. And we hope you tune in.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much for listening.